Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Today, as part of our throwback series, we'll be discussing Donnie Darko. Starring Jake Gyllenhaal. I made a new friend. Real or imaginary? Imaginary. Frank. Frank. What did Frank say? He said follow him. Follow him. Where? Into the future. Jana Malone. Donnie Darko. What the hell kind of name is that? It's like some sort of superhero or something. Maggie Gyllenhaal. Donnie, you're such a dick. Mary McDonald. How's it feel to have a wacko for a son? It feels wonderful. Noah Wiley. Basic principles of time travel are there. You've got your vessel and your portal, and your vessel can be just about anything, most likely a spacecraft. Drew Barrymore. You look like you belong here. Patrick Swayze. Young men and women today are completely paralyzed by their fears. They surrender their bodies to the temptation and destruction of drugs, alcohol, and premarital sex. And Catherine Ross. Has he ever told you about his friend Frank? Frank? Yes, the giant bunny rabbit. Directed by Richard Kelly. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. I'll tell you what he said. He asked me to forcibly insert the Lifeline X side card into my anus. It's Gally in Glasgow. Hungry, hungry hippos. It's Devon in London. Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. It's Patrick in London. You're not a bitch. You're bitching, but you're not a bitch. It's Matt in South Korea. Oh, welcome back, gang. And welcome back, listeners, to another throwback choice. Which just so happens to be mine, as I uh, as I wanted to unpack Richard Kelly's cult phenomenon, Donnie Darko, with you, and hopefully get some answers, team. Please, please tell me that you've got something to bring, because I am struggling with this one. <laughs> I'll I'll give it my best. <laughs> Shall we start with first experiences? Uh, how about you, Gally? I remember being attracted to the title and the art cover in the blockbuster video in Stoke-on-Trent. And uh, and at that point in my life, and correct me if I'm wrong, but as a teenage boy, I was very single-minded uh, and a little bit too obsessed with discovering things on my own that no one else knew about, even though that is absolute folly. So new music, new films, new anything, as long as it was obscure. And Donnie Darko became like a bit of a stamp of approval for me amongst, you know, my little circle of two friends that's a triangle it is isn't it <laughs> <laughs> so that that was it that was really my history with it and um again i'm referring back to uh film school i i stole quite a bit of donnie darko in uh do you remember the one minute wonders that we did uh oh, it yes. was in our first year patrick and devil um yeah i nicked it i nicked the 360 shot when Donnie's walking through the party and starts to see all the um, abyss-like water channels um, 
from people. So I stole that completely, absolutely stole it. And then for my student film, I essentially cast somebody who was the Yorkshire Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, so there you go. <laughs> true, yeah. Jack, Jack Gyllenhaal. Jack, Jack Gyllenhaal he was. Hey up. You even gave him a, a grey hoodie, right? Shout out to Tim Scoresby if he's listening. Yeah, shout out Tim. Thank you very much for wearing all of my clothes on uh, the shooting. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, so I, my, I wore my influence on my sleeve. What can I say? Uh, what about you, Matt? Luckily, I, I don't know if I had more than... More than two friends at the time. I think, I think I did. It was probably more of a circle. Just, uh, some of them <laughs> saw it at the Hyde Park Picture House during, uh, the Leeds Film Festival, uh, that felt like first year, which would have been 2002. So I don't know if that's right. Um, but I didn't go because I thought I was clever and yeah, uh, what's all the fuss about? Um, you know, I couldn't be dragged into it. It was like this breaking bad syndrome where everyone talks about it and it's like, well, I'm not watching it then. Uh, I later saw it on my own terms. Um, and I think of it as now as the film that made me want to wear hoodies all the time. So again, that links into what you're, what you're saying. It's very influential. Um, it felt otherworldly. It had like this Lynchian vibe in its kind of white picket fence, green manicured lawns and American suburbia with all these secrets beneath. But I always thought that was kind of a shallow, um, view of, Lynch's work. Everyone just looks at the first two minutes of Blue Velvet and says, oh, that's that's David Lynch. But it did have an element of that to it. Um, so I think I saw it on DVD. I, I remembered it hazily. I think it's a really good pick because it was a really big deal amongst people at the time. And it tapped into something contemporary and interesting and zeitgeisty. Uh, and it just feels like post 9-11 weirdness to me. That's how I kind of remember it. Um but, you know, a lot of the people that liked it were kind of stoned students. And um, so I kind of rejected a lot of it. If I did any of that, I did all that on my own without talking to a lot of those people. So um, <laughs> I, I equated it to, I was, I was more of like a Spielberg guy and then Tarantino blew my mind. And then this film came in that kind of had a, a, this confusing element to it. And I'm all right being confused. Like in Pulp Fiction, you're confused momentarily. But then you go, oh, they're in the same diner, like a few minutes later or something. It's like the confusion resolves itself quickly. But a film that's entirely confusing uh, was a challenge. And I've never really been into really incoherent, abstract stuff. We got into some foreign films a bit later, which made it easier. But um, yeah, this was one of the early ones that uh, had a lot of people saying, oh, it's it's about this or it's about that. And I couldn't really tap into it. So without, without giving away too many uh, sandwiches... Um, uh, I, I remember my girlfriend at uni had uh, a brief history of time on her bedside and I looked at that one day and I've never felt so stupid and I, I, I don't think I've ever studied anything like that again um, also The Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunnymen jumps out immediately because it's one of my favourite songs ever and that entire opening I always remembered very fondly uh, so this time around, this was my process. I watched the theatrical cut and then I watched the director's cut and then I watched a bunch of YouTube videos and stuff explaining it to me. And, uh, so I, I understand Terminator. I understand Back to the Future. That's more my level. So <laughs> you might have to help me out with some of the, uh, the tangent stuff. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll pass over to Devlin. I would say I have a very similar, uh, origin tale to Galley, um, right down to the, um, uh, uh, 
pitiably small friendship group. <laughs> but yeah, I, I would have picked this up uh, uh, living back in Dalo. It would have been probably 2002 when it finally, finally made its way to video. So that would have been... I Perhaps I was actually in Stoke at the time. I was living in Stoke 2002, 2003. So I was... Um, in a student halls with 12 other people. So probably it's the sort of thing. And also we were massively stoned throughout that entire period. So, uh, this all tracks. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, I really loved it. It was a big deal in like kind of, you know, alt rocky kind of late Kerrang era of, you know, you're moving on from the dumber parts of that and you're into like, uh, you know, um, trying to kind of get away from the bodies hitting the floor and try and find something a bit more. It's, it's like a very transitional moment. So I, I really loved it. And then similarly, um, once it had the big crossover, it was Christmas 2003 was when Gary Jules hit number one. Gary Jules and Michael Andrews hit number one. It felt like it wasn't kind of ours anymore. Like that, you know, your, your mum loved the song and your aunties loved the song and, and they'd sing it along while they were. You know, and, and so it felt like perhaps some of the underground cachet was, was, was blown, which is understandable. It was, you know, it's a, it's a big, it's a Hollywood film. It wasn't a big Hollywood film. It was a low budget film, but, um, I guess we'll talk later about where it sat in the industry at that time. But, um, it was a, a genuine discovery, a DVD discovery. And then by 2004, it kind of completely surfaced mainstream. And that's when we got the, the director's cut reissue, which I also watched at the time it came out and which I also didn't particularly care for. And, um, I have seen it once or twice in the interim, but it had been a while. Very fond memories of it. How about you, Patrick? It's funny you mentioned the, the song, the Tears for Fears cover. Um, that I was trying to remember and trying to place it. I definitely placed it around 2002 when I was in sixth form college in Leicester and discussing it there. It may have even been with Biggins, a uh, friend of the show who, who's on recently. Hello. Hey, Biggins. And I think I remember discussing it with him, but I think my into the film was the song. And I was like, oh, this song, oh, it's in this film, Donnie Darker, reading Empire magazine at the time and, and going that way. And then I, I do think, I remember reading an article in Empire about Richard Kelly at the time being this exciting new director. And it was, I've still got the DVD and that's why I watched it on for this one that I bought um around that time to to watch it's it's very simple it's play the film or it is scene set up you know it's it's very basic dvd i haven't seen the director's um cuts the extended one so i'll ask you about that later but i remember i haven't seen it for years i don't know why and i just i have quite vivid memories of lamenting in this film at the time and watching it on my own at home and kind of taking something in it from an emotional level uh and kind of it's speaking to me there rather than a challenge from a, that i've experienced this week watching it twice i experienced more of a challenge from a, a, a scientific level and and a, f- f- a physiological kind of talk that we'll, we'll go into i'm sure and just remember being really attached to the characters, Don, Donnie and Gretchen and their relationship. And I think it's one of those films that I used to watch at uni quite a bit as well. Maybe not with you guys, but on my own to kind of feel a certain way that you used to do when you were late teens and you enjoyed feeling a certain way, feeling sad and kind of feeling a little bit morbid because I don't know, sometimes it feels quite good. Um, but that song, the, the Mad, Mad World that, um, really elevates that emotion as well and 
that's how I remember it. It's just a DVD I've always had. And it's always a film I've always looked back on fondly. And, but just not seen for years. So thanks for picking it, Gully. I'm looking forward to this. Well, I think it would be prudent considering, um, the plot somewhat difficult to navigate through if you haven't seen the film for a long, long time. So I will ask Patrick, have you got one of your famous plot <laughs> summaries? Behave. Donnie Darko has been sleepwalking. Waking up in the middle of a road and clashes with his family at home. A classic troubled teenager. One night in 1988, during the presidential election, amidst not taking his medication, a strange voice dreamily leads Donnie to a golf course, where Frank, a disturbing rabbit-costumed figure, warns Donnie that the end of the world is upon them. In 26 days, 6 hours, 42 minutes, and 12 seconds. This fortunate wandering meant Donnie avoided an unidentified plane engine that landed in his bedroom in the dead of night. Frank now visits Donnie more and more, bidding Donnie flood the school and burn down local celebrity Jim Cunningham's home, creation in the form of destruction. As Donnie's influence on those around him grows with his newfounded clarity and observation, he meets Gretchen Ross, with whom a close bond and loving kinship is formed. Frank leads Donnie to explore time travel, and after conversing with Professor Monotov, reads a book by Grandma Death herself, Roberta Sparrow, called The Philosophy of Time Travel. Donnie starts to daytime hallucinate and sees the flow of time around him, leading Donnie towards his own future. He can only hope the answers will come to him in his sleep. He hopes that when the world comes to an end, he can breathe a sigh of relief, because there will be so much more to look forward to. It's a very, very mad world i'm still baffled why cbb's haven't called i am literally Bravo. oh my head if my head was on the pillow i would be peacefully gone <laughs> thank you very much patrick a lovely lovely summary and uh, and far better than i could do so i think that would will suffice the, the audience actually can't see the, the way um Patrick closes his book and places it down next to him <laughs> as well, uh, which is very, that's, very, that's great. The um, second, second start to the right and straight until morning. It's a Peter <clears throat> Pan notebook as well. So I think it's, it's fitting for story time uh, here as well. Ordinarily, we, we go through production histories. We talk about the director, the cast, etc. Um, because this one has got a, now I'm loath to call it a director's cut because I believe Richard Kelly himself doesn't really it doesn't really fit into what we think is a quote-unquote director's cut more of a here are the scenes that didn't make the theatrical release due to studio uh mandates namely getting it under two hours and also um there's a few scenes that are chopped here and there um again i think it was more down to time than anything else empire actually um uh, knocked a star off for the director's cut um, when they reviewed it, uh, uh, it removed some of the mystery and some of the magic, according to them. And early critics corner, um, Mark Commode argues against the director's cut saying in his quite lazy, smug two minute BFI review, um, <laughs> the, the, uh, the film requires no embellishment, explanation or expansion. It was pretty much perfect the first time around, according to him. Um, but I'm, I'm not, entirely in agreement but um you know if you know if he'd created anything himself other than 
rubbish skiffle music you might know <laughs> oh but, uh, sorry sorry i've done it again I've, uh, sorry Sorry, oh, Mark. Dear me, dear I know he listens well, what, as well. I, Sorry, Mark, if you're tuning in again. <laughs> one of the one of the things I was going to propose then is that Patrick, you've not seen the director's cut, and I'd imagine there. I'd imagine there will be quite a lot of people that are sort of um, casual Donnie Darko fans may have seen it, but you know didn't get in in wrapped in the the kind of the lore and and wanting to expand on it, and and also um, I guess it kind of falls down to the two sides of the brain. Um, you know, the old, uh, the old adage that you've got your mathematicians and your scientists who need an absolute answer. And then you have those people who do English and history who are able to, um, take bits of evidence, form an opinion and write a, a, an answer that doesn't necessarily can be proven or disproven, just an argument. What I'm going to propose is for, for Patrick and for listeners, and also just to get straight into it, I'm going to read this actual explanation is filled by the director's cut if you're happy which talks about the primary and tangent universes Gally, this is this is the explanation of the director's cut not the theatrical would it no the explanation of what is actually going on right. according both to yeah. okay, in both sorry. versions yeah, okay. however however we will get into it and we'll talk about director's intent and also what a director should be doing namely if this is his intent it's not really in the theatrical version, and if it was, but we'll get into that. We'll get into that. So here we go. I'm going to read it. Um, feel free to chuckle. Here we go. Much of the film takes place in an unstable tangent universe that is physically connected to the primary universe by a wormhole in an exact duplicate of it, except for a metal object known as the artifact, which in this case is a jet engine that falls off the plane. If the artifact is not sent to the primary universe by the chosen living receiver, Donnie, within 28 days, the primary universe will be destroyed upon the collapse of the tangent in a black hole. Are you still with me, kids? To aid in this task, the living receiver is given superhuman abilities such as foresight, physical strength, and elemental powers at the cost of troubling visions and paranoia. The manipulated living, who live around the living receiver, support him in unnatural ways, setting up a domino of events, encouraging Donnie to return the artifact. The manipulated dead, those who die within the tangent universe, are more aware than the living, having the ability to travel through time and set an insurance trap, a scenario which will leave the living receiver no choice other than to return the artifact and save the primary universe. Oh no, I've gone cross-eyed. Um, that is it. So that is the explanation. I, um, I wish uh, I wish Christopher Lloyd did this on a chalkboard um, with, with Michael yeah, J. Fox. Yeah, I could follow that yeah. then. Yeah, yeah I, I, apologies for the crudity of the uh, explanation. Here. <laughs> um, I, I don't have time <laughs> to fully to embellish it. <laughs> Very good. Before we get into, like, you know, talking about the film, the cast, the performances, etc. I mean, that is quite silly when you read it out loud. I mean, what are our thoughts? Patrick, does that track from the film that you saw? When you say something quite silly, I, I kind of defend it in a way. Like, I don't find it silly. It is an explanation. And this is, well, th- this is kind of the, what we've learned is the functions of time travel and, and alternate realities and alternate timelines. And that there's, there's the, the chalkboard form from, from uh, <laughs> I've just drawn to show you. Um, yeah. And so I kind of, I kind of get like the, the fracturing of time and alternate universes or timelines and 
the, the, the silly thing is, or what I didn't get throughout the theatrical thing at all, apart from, you know, like his name's Donnie Darko, that there's a comment about it sound like a superhero and all of this. And technically this is some sort of alternate comic book superhero film. The clues aren't exactly, I mean, you don't want to bash people over the head or indeed bash a big bull dog with a, with an axe, mm-hmm. but that's supposed to be a superhuman strength. There's a comment, yeah. there's an off, off comment by the cop who says, that's made out of brass. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, yeah. but the, the bit that is kind of laughable is that the, Richard Kelly and the theatrical, and it really doesn't track in the directors either. You never see Donnie have telekinesis, which is how he apparently pulls the jet engine from oh, the, what? The tangent. Is that because he into goes the into the wormhole and his eyes bulge? And is that him communicating then with the timeline in that way? The way that I think it's supposed to be is that the events that lead Donnie to the top of the hill, when he sees the black hole emerge, he then uses telekinesis to pull it from, from that universe into, into ours. And then those, those timelines cross over. And that is why. He's laughing at the end because he's seen the future because he's lived it and he's now gone back and made his choice. I don't buy that. There's never a scene where he moves a knife or something or just maybe then we could track that he's also got telekinesis. The other one is that he can see into the future, which we see enough of that because he sees the, um, the, the, as he calls it, God's channels and people traveling through it. But that's, yeah, it, 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 it for me it kind of takes away i think matt said and i agree half with commode it removes that mystery the reasons why i think i enjoyed it then and the reasons why i still enjoy it is that it's kind of like a an adolescent wish fulfillment story because we all think that we're the center of the universe when we're a teenager and i think the film tracks that way but to put a kind of scientific time travel even though they're just in-world explanations by richard kelly they don't necessarily need to be scientific as in to be proven um it doesn't really work because i don't think he sets it up in the in the actual film but i buy it's 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 big isn't it this film it has big ideas and it can can fall apart if we talk about too much in a way i feel but there's there's the understanding that i think donnie has come to you know he's professor noah weill er doctor what's his name uh, uh, Wiley, Dr. I think. Carter. Yeah. 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 Professor Monatov. He, he says he has to stop the conversation there as he loses his job and he really wants to get into that conversation. But I think Donnie has, with the book, with Grandma Death's book, started to understand what's going on. And I think that, I thought that was what the laughter was at the end, Gally, and seeing that black hole. And he there, in, in that point there, is, is it a sacrifice and him understanding that he has to die in order to reset the timeline, so to speak, and, and to, to um, having enlightened people. But then how does, <laughs> fuck me. How does, how do the other characters like Swayze and, and, uh, Frank understand what's happening? You know, in the, in the Mad World montage at the end, they seem to have understood what, what, what they're, what's coming. Well, that's the dream that, that, that I, the bit that I found was that they've experienced the events of the tangent universe as if it were a dream. And when they're waking up, you can see the Swayze's in tears, um, presumably because he got caught in the dream and he feels some shame for what he yeah, yeah, yeah. has tucked away in his house and now undiscovered. And Gretchen doesn't and everyone know else because has the, she died. No, she, she never met Donnie. She, um, was yet to go to the school 
um and and have that that day in the class so she never got the chance to to meet donny she just she's the same person but she just hasn't had chance to experience those events yet gretchen and uh, and mary mcdonald they have the they do and i i think it's implied there that the way that they they lock eyes and that she raises her hand to her it's that they they do both have some kind of uh, um some kind of sense memory if nothing else uh, you mentioned the um the idea of it being a comic book film in a, in a kind of masked way uh, and it has that comic book sci-fi logic Mm-hmm. to it um th- there's the line why why are you wearing that stupid man suit as well which suggests yes. that donnie is more than more than human he's like clark kent pretending to be human and that's his costume you know to 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 blend it the arguments for and against the the director's cut i don't know what he was thinking at the time but i i listened to a podcast recently um uh richard kelly was in quite a like an hour-long discussion about mainly about southland tales actually but he, he dipped into donnie darko as well and he seems quite um now ambivalent on i think um quite honestly he said that uh he doesn't think that the director's cut is in any way definitive it's basically that the stuff that we were talking about now the tangent universe the object the receiver um was mostly supplemental material that he would put on the website and that uh, i think he probably used as the framework via which to write this story um and i'm I'm fine with that being a being there for him to construct the film, but I, I I don't see it being necessary to the film that that I ended up watching, and um, I think that's probably the the Mark Kermode argument, which is that when you say comic book logic, anytime you talk about something big and metaphysical, and and like you were saying, Matt, about I also I own a brief history of time. It's up in this bookcase somewhere, and I've read it once, <laughs> and I've probably caught about four percent of it. And uh, I, I've not studied it, and a film is not going to bridge the gap for me on fucking meta, like quantum physics in two hours while also telling a story. And whenever a film tries to do it, which I never really got on board with Interstellar because I felt like it would just stop a film to try and teach me something. It's like, I know I'm, I'm a dumb person. I'm not going to get this. You're not going to be able to teach me physics in a film. So I think it was a smart decision to remove it and to just leave the emotional arc intact along the framework of the thing. But when you hear it out loud, and especially when the director's cut for, for you, Patrick, just to, let you know is that it actually stops to have on-screen text from Roberta Sparrow's book. Right. So all this stuff is, is That's not on the just tangent in the and film. The physical. I have a quote there from, from Kevin Smith just quickly. Uh, Look at you just putting words up on a screen. That's what people like to do. Go to the movies and read. <laughs> That's what he said to him <laughs> on the commentary. Um, apparently a fan of the film, apparently a friend. But uh yeah, th- there was one other thing about um on the on that commentary that was kind of baffling to me which was all about a higher power or future time travelers being the ones who are contacting donny um there's this idea of the biblical flood of the school which i kind of kind of got bits and pieces of um but h- how much did you understand of the higher beings or the future time travelers that are now communicating with with him no i think that's too far i think it's an event and I always read this film as, as an event that happens that Donnie starts to understand and the wormhole and, and like the Rosenbridge kind of, uh, 
awakening or whatever, whether that is the end of the world and whether at that point that, that nothing else happens. But that wormhole setting Donnie on some sort of journey, whether uh, tangential or, or adjacent to the timeline, I that's the way I read it. I don't see it as anyone in control of anything here. I think there's an event that starts this spiral and interconnecting thing because it's the engine from the mum and daughter's plane landing on his bedroom. It's a strange twist of fate. Um, I don't think there's any control there apart from, obviously we have our protagonist and we, he's the, the hero and he's on his journey. There's the deliberateness is, is learning with him. I don't know how, but I quite like that we don't show him learning everything explicitly. You know, he gets the gun. He knows what purpose the gun is because he's learned of Frank's injuries as he goes through. And I, there's also, you know, he's not taking his meds, is, is Donnie. He, he's... Uh, Patrick, so here's another one in the director's cut. Um, mm. That is explicitly said through um, the doctor that he's visiting, that they're placebos, so... They're just wow. water, the, uh, Interesting. the tablets of water again. And, and, and just to answer your question, Matt, um, you know, some of the, uh, some of the, the more religious elements of which they run through the film, uh, some accidental and some deliberate, and we'll get into the accidental bits. Um, uh, to me, again, the only way that I can approach this film now as a kid, as a, as a young, well, as a teenager, this was just obviously mind blowing. Uh, stuff, but now I just think no. The only way I can enjoy this is if this is one big metaphor for how you feel when you're that age, and everything that's happening is the kind of thing that you put yourself in the center of the universe when you are a teenager, because you do feel like you're the most important person walking around, and and that to me is how I rationalize everything. Is I don't go down the the scientific route. I look at this as pure fantasy, and it's the only way because if I go down the science fiction route, this film, I think, for me, crumbles apart um, and it, it really takes away uh, some of the elements that I think are very, very strong. The satirical elements, the anti-establishment stuff, that all kind of gets washed away if we concentrate, if I concentrate too much on the philosophy of time travel because I'm just not convinced that Kelly fully has got every single... Uh, aspect nailed on and i don't and i think it's i think it's folly to do it anyway because you'll always find people that will pick holes in it he's as well you know it's funny that you said devlin that he's almost walking back into lynch territory where it's like it's whatever you think to be honest with it it's whatever you think i it's so abstract you project whatever you want onto it I, it's not so much that he's walking uh, away from that if anything he's he's further tunneling into this idea of like that he, he's saying that I understand it and, and he thinks that he's got this thing kind of like in his own brain at least nailed down. But I think the idea is that it was, he was young when he made the film. He was only 23 when he wrote it, 24 at production. Um, he was saying that when he's on set, he's trying to explain things to some of the actors. And I, that's where I can see that this is useful. This is where I can see that it's a useful framework to, you give the actors the information you feel that is necessary at the time to, to get them to be able to deliver what you want from them. So it's great that he has this thing locked in his head. And what I think was the, was the mistake was this idea of like, he was clearly quite 
understandably very proud of the the massive amounts of work that he had done like clearly he had i mean we're dismissing it to an extent which is fair i think because i don't think it's presented very well in the in the version of the film that it is presented in but it is an enormous amount of of backstory and thought and and probably he probably sat and, and tore this thing apart and put it back together and he created this entire you know but it's what he's created is a kind of a hybrid of like fantasy and hard sci-fi hard sci-fi being that you know everything in a hard sci-fi has to have this this leads to this this leads to this there's a theoretical uh mechanical quality to why this or this would happen whereas that is detrimental to the film he ended up making which is an emotional uh uh abstract journey sort of more like a kind of um or like almost like a like a lovecraft type thing of you can talk around the event that's happening but if you start to explain like you said patrick that this is an event that happens once you explain it you take away the power not just of the mystery of the film but the mystery of the event because these are all things that don't exist these are theoretical concepts as soon as you explain them in a way that like the likes of me can understand it then you've you've dumbed it down because if I get it, I shouldn't get it. I shouldn't get Einstein, Rosenkrantz, <laughs> and well, alternate he, he parallel said, universes. He, he said that he writes in a very stream of consciousness way, and he had the Bermuda Triangle in his mind, and he had parents on the uh, the, the, his mum on the plane in his mind, and he was connecting the dots. It's something he wrote for himself to please himself, and his attitude was, if it catches on, then great. But what Galley was just saying a minute ago was spot on for me i've written it's a parable of teenage confusion and paranoia and that's how i read it and it somehow captures that feeling we have at school of the uncertainty of things about who we are what we're going to do with our lives misunderstanding things and relationships and friends and girls and families and i read it not really in a metaphysical way i read it in a as a vague commentary on on that kind of feeling I think like with my first impression, like I said earlier, that it was the only emotion that I took from the film the first time. And I definitely saw all of this as a vehicle to have, to show a relationship with teenage, teenage angst and get Gretchen and Donnie together. And I, if you, if I really want to go down it, the way I view it now is that all this, these things that are happening to him are enabling him to experience some sort of life that he wasn't in, in a iteration of his, of his normal life. And meeting Gretchen was very important to give him closure and understanding of who he is and what, what's going on. Uh, high school, you know, love, romance and all, all of that. And I think that that's where I see the film. And I do agree, Gally, because it's, that's the more important thing here is who it is people growing up and figuring out who they are in the world amidst like love and fear. To, Democrats and Republicans. The two uh, deepest life, of human emotions. Life Patrick. and death, you know, you know. <laughs> and, uh, all, all those things are there and they're all very important in, in the characterization of them. I just think the time travel thing is, takes him on the journey, it gives him the, the, the emphasis of the journey. And I don't, like I said, we, we could go into it and re- it would really unravel. And I prefer, from the sounds of it, I prefer the theatrical. Uh, and the ideas behind this I prefer not really understanding and just knowing that it's important to a relationship and a, and a beginning a middle and an end Patrick I think that is a uh, that is a good place to leave our 
our hypothesis on on Donnie Darko, and we'll probably refer back to it as we go into the film. Um, so let's let's talk about it, and then we can get into Richard Kelly and also his career. Um, you, Matt, you mentioned the the introduction. There is something about the the trifecta, not just my friends, hey. that I had. <laughs> I, uh, there's something about combining visuals with music and rhythm of like of moving to the camera that just somehow gets me every time. And the, it's almost like its own little music video, but it's, uh, we talked about it in, and you reminded me actually offline about Boogie Nights when PTA is essentially doing the Goodfellas, I'm going to show you, I'm going to show off shot. And Richard Kelly does it a few times actually in this film because there's about, there's multiple introductions. There's like the film kind of, not that it stops and starts, but there's like three separate intros. The first one being the Killing Moon cycle and i just love that kind of 80s leafy suburbia which obviously at the time was super popular you know i'm thinking american beauty as well um it really is kind of part of the zeitgeist this was being explored in loads of different films well the interesting thing about the the opening was that it was always supposed to be in excess never tear us apart at the beginning the sundance cut was in excess and all of the shots are designed to hit the beats of that song Ah, it was fascinating, oh. really, listening back to that commentary because I always put Killing Moon at the beginning. That's that's my it's my jam at the beginning. There, that's what I what I want. I, I thought it was a travesty that he he took the Killing Moon out originally, but turns out it was always supposed to go later at, at the party. And Ian McCulloch, who uh, if he does say so himself, says the Killing Moon is the greatest song ever <laughs> written. Uh, he says it's a psalm almost hymnal it's about everything from birth to death to eternity and god and the eternal battle between fate and the human will and it contains the meaning of life so he's bigging himself up a bit there but um years after a hit he, this is a quote this is a quote from him just quickly there's a, there's a quote from him he says years after donnie darko was a hit oh sorry years after the killing moon was a hit we got an email saying this bloke wanted to use the song in a film, Donnie Darko, and we didn't think it would go anywhere, so we accepted a one-off three grand. Then when the director did the director's cut, he re- he replaced The Killing Moon with Never Tear Us Apart by In Excess. Aren't some people knobheads? <laughs> <laughs> when you asked before about what, what kind of um, uh, genre this fits into, is it kind of a, a Tarantino via Lynch it kind of feels like that. There's a moment with the Smurfette conversation, which feels like it's totally ripped off Tarantino. And then the, the use of music, you could argue too. And, and the Lynchian thing kind of pervades it all. So I don't know where it fits exactly, but I think Lynch and Tarantino are definitely names you could, you could throw in there. There are aspects of, of David Lynch, but it's a misreading to say that it's, it's, David Lynch territory because, uh, what, it, what it does have is kind of some of the mordant humor. And, uh, the, the kind of visual flair of Twin Peaks, the TV series, mm-hmm. yeah. and it's got moments from Blue Velvet. But outside of that, it doesn't have the, um, David Lynch would never, ever have a hard sci-fi concept sitting behind any of his films. They are completely like inspired by transcendental meditation and his own weirdness. And he doesn't know where he's going from one minute to the next. Whereas, uh, so he would never, he would also never be this meticulous in, um, those kind of shots that we're talking about, the really confident, uh, timed out montages. Apparently these were like, f- uh, there was Richard Kelly spoke to the, the cinematographer and apparently he was 
very nervous young man, but there were certain things on which he was very, very clear and very confident. And these sequences were the ones. And I guess that's why they're so kind of bravura. But visually, do you, I, I think there's, there's lots of bits and pieces that remind me of Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, especially the younger Paul Thomas Anderson, the, the use of, uh, handheld when he decides to go handheld and how that camera is wielded, possibly also because he's shooting full anamorphic and handheld anamorphic lenses always have a very distinctive look. But I'm thinking like the, um, uh, the big, uh, Patrick Swayze, Jim Cunningham talk in the, uh, in the, the Frank auditorium. Mackie seminar. Reminded me yes. a lot of Magnolia. Yeah. Yeah, it really did. But also there's some stuff in Requiem for a Dream around the time, um, maybe that was, was that after or, or what? But there's a, some stuff in there with yeah, Shooter yeah, McGavin yeah, doing, uh, his, uh, <laughs> it seemed like there was always Tappy an actor Tibbins. on, on yeah. Tappy Tibbins, yeah. Um, but th- there's some great stuff visually, like at film school, me and Joe Mack, friend of the show, were fascinated with ramping, which is when you alter the frame rate of the, camera in order to have slow motion or fast motion and doing it within a continuous take we did a little bit on on this on our student film the wilds um but you you have to kind of turn a dial as you as you're doing it and it lets more more or less light into the camera and sometimes you get a little flash um but uh, donnie darko achieves it brilliantly during that tears for fears uh head over heels uh yeah Sing, a and single kind of wanna that we're talking about continuing the synchronicity as well from like where it's not just ramping up to they're probably going up to somewhere like 48 50 frames per second and then they're going all the way down to maybe 10 12 frames a second and to keep all of that into like outrageous considering that the shot comes in the door takes in the entire corridor and then heads back out into the exterior right yeah, I mean, if you see something like Gus Van Sant's Elephant, which is where we stole it from, uh, as the, the Columbine killers are walking up to the, uh, to the yeah. school and the dog jumps up and it just ramps into slow motion as the dog jumps. Um, if you, there's a slight flash there where the camera that when the iris just opens up, um, I, I, I like all the slow motion stuff, but the fast motion bits are, it, it sort of goes from indie perfection to, uh, Benny Hill. And I, I'm not too keen on the on the faster motion stuff, but the design of it and uh, the timing of it must have been absolute perfection to get it just like that. Devlin, you use the the correct adjective. It's the confidence that that Kelly's got at such a young age. You know, this is a this has got some really big stars. You know, we've got some Oscar nomination uh, actors in there. Mary McDonnell is you know stands with fists always but i think she's fantastic in this i actually rewatching it i was like you know what she is the mvp of this film she's doing so much work with her expressions and i love how she's just this kind of like wino 80s mom who's secretly trying to keep up with appearances but also knows that you know everything around her is a bit of a you know, it's all, it's all a construct and a bit of a shambles. And she's, I think she sides yeah. with Donnie. She just wishes that Donnie was, you know, less troublesome and, uh, less of a problem for her within the community. And all, all of that skewing of the establishment is all of my favorite stuff. There's a wonderful bit when Donnie says to her, uh, something like, what's it like to have a fuck up of a son? And she replies, it's wonderful. And that moment is, really something yeah one of the things i think kelly does fantastically well in this is and it's obviously a a combination of the the scripts and also the actors but they are bringing so much because every single character feels authentic 
lived in and I'm, I'm watching it and I know all their backstories with such minimal amount of, uh, of screen time. Like even, even Donnie's best mates who we barely see, I know their dynamic. Like they are all, they're both tryhards. Donnie's a bit, Donnie's also an outcast, but he's the older guy. He's the smart one. So they gravitate around him. And, and the, the one whose dad's a doctor who just keeps coming out with comments, you know, we are supposed to kind of find him funny, but he's also, you know, uh, he's cruel like teenagers can be. I think all of that is just so well handled. I think that's where um, Richard Kelly being so young really, really works is that it's the the portrayal of like like realistic portrayals, painfully realistic portrayals of, of young people tend to come from younger filmmakers who are almost still just kind of recovering from from their high school. I don't know if you guys saw like Bo Burnham's eighth grade where it's just it's painful to watch because it's clearly a guy who totally still gets what it was like to be in high school. And yeah, the casual cruelty of even the kind of, you know, the nicer kids, uh, it's just, it's a real, it's, it doesn't, I, I know that he pulls a knife on him twice, which is, uh, that kid's called Seth Devlin, by the way. Yes. Lead singer of Phantom Planet. Yeah, Jason Schwartzman's band. California, here we come. Uh, and also Seth Rogen, uh, with, with kind of a cameo that this taps into, uh, freaks and geeks of the time uh, as well, which was also a very brutal, honest, if, if very funny, uh, view of high school. Well, I, I, and, and that was one of the things that when I, um, when I read the, uh, oral history and I saw an interview as well with Richard Kelly, uh, I mentioned about intent and some of it being accidental. And there's a, there's a, there's clearly a, if you want to see it, and there's plenty of uh, hints towards it, a kind of messianic complex, you know, Donnie being this um, savior for all, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit obvious when he's watching it's a double bill of evil dead. The last temptation of yeah. Christ. It and, lingers uh, on that, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah and, uh, Richard, Cun- you know, Richard Cunningham's three sins are, was it drugs, sex, uh, promiscuous sex, drugs. Richie and- Cunningham. Richie Cunningham. Yes, and my wife, Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can can we talk about uh, the... <laughs> Just bite your lip, we're going to get through this. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you can, you can, you can see that all play out. But one of the things that I found interesting, it was, it was a budgetary reason as to why the private school becomes a private Catholic school. And it was just because the production designer went to Kelly and said, listen, it is going to cost us an arm and a leg to dress all these kids in an 80s attire. It would, can we just give them a uniform? So it's like, yeah, just mm. give them a uniform. And then that feeds into the kind of anti-establishment, the constriction, um, yeah. you know, the uniformity of school and, and, and that, that, that little happy accident of, well, happy accident, that budgetary constraint meant that actually the film is, is, is all, all stronger for it because otherwise it, it would have been, you know, just people wearing loads of, uh, Kappa tracksuits. Yeah. Kappa. It's, it's, it's so, an American. <laughs> well, maybe. It was, yeah. it was, um, it's also a really good way of, um, setting more of the, the, the environment. I thought that was really fascinating the way that they set up, um, 1988 suburban Virginia in these tiny little ways. The fact that, um, the, the, the election is going on and they're talking about it at the dinner table. Uh, first glance might just seem like, Oh, I see. We're locating it to make sure that we understand that it's a George Bush senior era. You know, it, it, sometimes you get these really cheap ways of, uh, enforcing the idea of what time and, and place it is, but it's in Virginia, which is essentially where most of the people 
have some connection to Capitol Hill politics. So it would make sense that, uh, that they're all talking about Dukakis and Bush and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's even carries through to the fact that the, the game they're watching is a Washington football team game. They're obviously in a wealthy enclave. So it makes sense that he would be in a fairly wealthy school. He wouldn't be in like a, you know, uh, a fucked up, uh, dangerous mind sitting on your chair backwards kind of high school. I just love being in this world that he's created. The satire that runs through it. And I forgot how funny the film is. Like there are so many like really quite funny lines that just are peppered throughout. And most of them go to, uh, to Beth Grant as, uh, Kitty Farmer. I think we've all seen Bonanza. <laughs> I think a, a lot of good stuff comes from, uh, Jake and Maggie. Um, too, and the, the fact that they're real siblings. Um, there's a good quote from Jake about when he first read the script. It was about how this, he felt the story had a strange psychosis and it beautifully captured the experience of moving into adulthood and the world felt that felt so solid became movable and liquid, which was one of the only really good explanations for the visuals of the, you know, being drawn around by the Terminator 2. Uh, you know, liquid metal. The, the abyss. Um, yeah. Yeah, the abyss. And, uh, it, it answers that, that question of why these stone teenagers love it so much. And like, A, they're high as kites. And B, that. And I'm not a huge Gyllenhaal fan, but I'm, I, I can't imagine anyone else playing the part, but I did a bit of research and Patrick Fugit from Almost Famous, who played William, almost got it. And I feel like that might have worked, but, um, it's very hard to see anyone else in, in, in the role now. I'm surprised you don't like Gyllenhaal, Matt. I'll, I'll ask you why after, but I, I think he's great in this. And I, he's one of those actors that I, I, I really admire because he will go to the places that most other actors don't. Uh, maybe it's because I love Douglas for also being a risk taker, but he will just, you know, in Nightcrawler, he is despicable. And he's fantastic in it. And there's, there's something that's just off and a little bit un, I, I can never trust him. So whenever he's, whenever he's the actual protagonist with no edge, I'm like, nah, there's got to be an edge. He's just, you cannot trust him. I think that's why he ended up playing, um, a kind of bullshit villain in the latest Spider-Man film. Cause even though he's, you know, conventionally is good looking guy, he's got charm. He, he's willing to kind of go to those places that I think most Hollywood leading men wouldn't wouldn't want to go he's quite method isn't he 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 beefs up for the roles and Mm -hmm. i think it's the choices i haven't seen nightcrawler yet but um oh matt you'll really enjoy it like if there's anything to take away yeah uh and god bless bill paxton as well he's great in it too but he brings some really beautiful moments in in this film as well where he recalls back to the future let's say or when he asks gretchen out and he's, he's a teenage frustration of going with her and wanting to kiss her that he doesn't know how to, to contain himself. So he says it, you know, all these things there. I love those little moments compared to his energetic will to understand what's going on when he's talking to his professor. I think it's a very rounded performance. And I think, I think, I think Jake's fucking brilliant in this. I think performances across the board are excellent. Like, and Maggie, Maggie too. Like Maggie's brilliant with, um, like Mac, Maggie's great. Like until secretary, it was like, mm-hmm. as soon as you see secretary, it's like, wow, she's very attractive as well. Like in a Moomin kind of way. I think she looks a bit like one of the Moomins, but, uh, yeah. Is this going to end up like the Smurfette conversation where we have to? <laughs> yeah, oh, we're, sorry, going yeah we're going down a Tarantino route, but, uh, it's her reaction to the, 
to the bang at the house. You know, like, I half expect her to scream, but I love that she doesn't and she just closes in on herself, like, pure fear. I think it's, I don't know, that moment really always just quite striking to me. I like the, um, the, the interaction between them when, right towards the end when they decide that they're going to have the party. And it's another great kind of very small Jake Gyllenhaal moment. Uh, again, one which is, I think, betrayed by the, uh, uh, the line from Catherine Ross later where she says, uh, that you can stop taking the pills, they're placebos. I don't think that that should be in there largely because when he walks in, I don't know if you see, but he's completely like dropped. His, his mouth is hanging open. He's got drool hanging from his lip, like as if he's, uh, he's in a kind of, uh, a fugue state because he's dosed up with probably some very strong, uh, uh, pills. And you see that as soon as he turns to her, he's got like this really kind of dead blank expression on his face. And then he says, we should have a party. And then he sort of snaps too and he sucks the little bit of, um, drool off his lip and cleans himself up. I always saw that there, Devlin, as like a premeditated thing. Like he knows there's going to be a party. He knows what's happening because we're at that stage of the film and his journey now that he's understanding everything that's coming about, right? To me, that betrays the bit where he finally, like, he just can't, for whatever reason, he's drawn to go, you know, the cellar door mm-hmm. moment. If he really knew, then we're into the Noah Wiley conversation again, which is, well, if you, if it's all part and parcel of predestination, yeah. oh God, I've done it again. I've gone down the side. No, no, street, but we have to. Um, then you would make it, you would make a different choice. But if everything's leading towards the, uh, what do they call it? The, it's not an inflection point. What do they call it? An insurance? Insurance scenario. Insurance scenario. So essentially that is, the, 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 the one person that he is fully connected with and is fully emotionally connected to, which is Gretchen, uh, her dying essentially means that, you know, it, it, that's what makes him go on to, to do the thing. And if he knew that that was coming at any point before it happened, then that's never in the film. I, I nor didn't is mean it in any way how he interacts with it. I didn't mean, sorry, like full on, like knows the future. I more meant like as soon as she okay. said it, I think he understood what's happening and he made that, whether he already knows it or, or didn't realize he knows it, he's like, right, that's party time. That's that. I think like he, he takes the gun for a reason. He knows that Frank's got the injury and all yeah. of this. So it, I don't know whether, you know, he said he was in that kind of meditative state. Whether he, I'm not saying he, already sees the future i just think that some part of him is ready for it and understands from that journey that he's going on knows that this is the next thing that has to happen and that's why he says it so quickly and with absolutely no uh yeah and back to the no while conversation maybe going to that cellar door that's him trying to change the course of something not that he knows what the course is but we've already set up very cleverly that grandma death is a hazard in the road and we think that she's going to get run over finally it ends up being gretchen and there's all this kind of it's all leading there that event it's all leading to one place yeah. i i wanted to also you know as we're running through the cast and some of the characters um you know god bless him rest in peace gone way too soon I love Patrick Swayze in this film. It's, it's, to me, again, in my own little weird movie logic, it's like as if Bodhi didn't die when he went out into the great surf and then came back. I'm not suggesting that Bodhi was actually a, Became a child. A... Uh, <laughs> Point break ruined. Bank robbery and murder, I'm okay with, but <laughs> fucking hell. <laughs> well, I think Kelly understood 
the the Bodhi character that he you know we talked about it in our Point Break episode. He's full of shit. And uh, and Richard Richard or Richie uh, Cunningham is also Jim Cunningham, Jim uh, Cunningham. Uh, full of shit. Um, Jim Cunningham. I know. I, I'm just going to keep calling him Richard Cunningham. I don't know why. It's because of Austin Powers. God damn it. I just got Happy Days Ron Howard in my head now. Yeah. <laughs> but um, Mark Kermode said that this was a career best performance for Swayze, which is totally wrong. It is Point Break, isn't it? Point Break is a finer performance. Yeah. Come on, Mark. Do you see this? This is an anger prisoner, a textbook exact prisoner. Do you see the fear of people? This boy is scared to death of the truth. Son, it breaks my heart to say this, but I believe you are a very troubled and confused young man. I believe you are searching for the answers in all the wrong places. You're right, actually. I am pretty, I'm, I'm pretty troubled and I'm, I'm pretty confused, but I, and I'm afraid, really, really afraid. Really afraid, but I, I, I think you're fucking antichrist. Reminds you that Patrick Swayze in his later career was probably not used and fully utilized as he should have been. Cause I remember seeing him with Meatloaf in Black Dog, a road trucking action film. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, <laughs> this is depressing. What are you doing in this? So, uh, yeah, no, he's great in this. And, and what he, he's got that kind of slippery, charm that is and i when i first saw it i never saw it going down that route i just thought he would be exposed no. for for being yeah. a, a bullshitter and do we think he left the wallet on the street to lure kids in as well oh you're oh patrick yeah no, i didn't think that, I, I wondered yeah, that last right. this morning i was like oh clever interesting there's a strange eye to like the whole film isn't there with with sparkle motion in particular ah yes, yes. yeah and, uh, there's also the bit where the therapist allows donny to kind of unzip his trousers and it, it goes a little bit too far yeah, and there's yeah. there's a, a pedophilic kind of edge to the movie that yeah it's kind of just on the surface bub- bubbling and i love the ironic choice of uh you know he's had all these obscure tracks and then it's like duran duran <laughs> notorious oh uh, on the commentary they said that was supposed to be west end girls but they couldn't afford it uh, yeah. So it what? ended up as notorious by wow. Duran. Who would have thought? Apparently, Pet Shop Boys are Dur- more expensive. More expensive than Duran Duran. Yeah, weird. That's what Kevin Smith said. Again, I love the fact that Sparkle Motion are a bit naff, especially the lead one. <laughs> She's shit. Yeah, <laughs> I'd forgotten about Charita's dance, or at least I'd forgotten. I, I remember I that the kind of ironic juxtaposition of the two, but I was oddly moved by the whole thing. Yeah. I, I don't know why. Yeah. I just got really, really into that. Oh, you really I, feel I, for her character, don't you? Well, that's, that's yeah. true. Yeah. to try to get, come out of her, um, her shell, isn't it? You know, and, and mm. if you've got nowhere else to express yourself, then at school, you do it in such a hostile environment and she's being bullied. And I think it, and I really... love his line to her. Oh, yeah. As well. That's a very emotional moment. I promise one day things are going to get better for you. That, that all builds to that. Yeah. And again, that's the really important thing that Donnie has to do that takes him on this thing to to affect her and she's got the book she's kind of in love with him anyway because maybe he has stood up for her in the past but to fully have that influence i think is really important because charita is you know she's the the character that deserves better and that moment at the end when she's smiling is is a a nice payoff yeah yeah. can i point at one character that i'm not sure works and i it's probably down to the actor Although she was one of the producers, so I assume that's why Drew. she's Uh-oh. there. I'm, I'm not, I'm not convinced by Drew at all. I think she's, um, she's trying a bit too hard to be a bit of an edge, an edge lord. I, 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 that whole bit when, uh, Gretchen comes in just feels really odd. Um, and I'm not sure it, it particularly tracks. It's supposed to be a kind of 
like a quite a touching moment and a connection between the two characters. But I mean, you can't do. I that, like this can era you? of Drew though, like when she was dating Fab from The Strokes, and uh, maybe it's because I've just gone through the uh, erotic thriller season and watched Poison Ivy, but I, I really like. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, okay, so, fair enough. <laughs> so I'm kind of yeah, I'm on Drew's side on this one. I'll stick up for her. I'm still latched on to wedding singer Drew then, I guess. So I, I do think that there's a, there's a great, mo- I, I, I guess I see what you mean that her and Noah Wiley's characters are probably the, the most difficult ones to, to play straight because they just have to be so impressed with, with Donnie and, um, to the film's credit that they don't make Donnie, you know, the kind of the, the, the wonder kid, the, you know, the, the stand in for, I don't feel like he's a stand in for the director and I don't feel like it's, you know, we've made him brilliant at everything. He is legitimately troubled and difficult and awkward. And there's a moment though, where Drew Barrymore, when she, uh, after she gets fired, her whole sequence where she's getting fired and the losing them to apathy stuff. I like, and when she walks out and that scream that Charita sees when she's sitting under the bleachers, I think that's a really kind of, it's a really powerful and authentic payoff. She always has to smile away through every film she's in. And this one, she plays a character who never, never has that opportunity to smile. So. Well, one of the other people we haven't spoken about yet, or, so far properly, but some of my favourite things, the sandwiches coming out a little bit, is the relationship between Donnie and Gretchen. And we haven't really spoken about Jenna Malone yet. Like, I've always been a big fan of hers from the Hunger Games films, and I kind of forgot it was her in this film. Actually, I forgot Drew Barrymore was in this film. I forgot Seth Rogen. But anyway, um, I think I think she does a really good job in this, and I love the one of the opening um, conversations between them, where she very candidly tells Donnie about her father and her mother. You know, like, yeah, it's one of those really open and honest and pure. Uh, conversations that I thought was really quite attractive to, to watch on the screen. So, why'd you move here? My parents got a divorce. My mom had to get a restraining order against my stepdad. He has emotional problems. Oh, I have those too. What kind of emotional problems does your dad have? He stabbed my mom four times in the chest. Oh. Did he go to jail? No, he fled. They still can't find him. But my mom and I had to change our names. And uh, I thought Gretchen Ross was really cool. Yeah, I was in jail once. I mean, I, I accidentally burned down this house. I mean, it was abandoned, but still, I, you know, I got held back in school. And can't drive till I'm 21, you know. But I'm over all that. I, I, I'm painting and stuff. Writing. I want to be a writer. Maybe a painter. I don't know. Maybe both. I'll write a book and draw the pictures. Then maybe people understand me. She makes um uh, for a really good kind of foil for him. She's not a manic pixie dream girl, which I guess hadn't really been coined at that point. She's not um she's not some sort of like fictitious object that he can fetishize over. She's she's she seems very real, and their connection together seems very real. Um, and it's really tentative, and you know the the great scene of the first time they ever talk to each other, and they get to the end of a pavement, and he just says, "Do you want to go with me?" And I love how 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 rushed and panicked that is, but it all feels really great. And the way she just then, is, yeah, okay. And then she just walks off and goes home, and he's just left on a pavement, not knowing what he's supposed to do with himself for the rest of the day. Yeah, yeah. And, and even even the second time there, when he's like, "Oh, we've been going together for two weeks now," the line's a little bit clunky, but she she nails it. And even Gyllenhaal, he kind of almost acknowledges how corny the line is, but he's like, "You sweater." remind yourself how beautiful the world is but then it's completely nailed like 
Kelly, I think, understands it. And then we have the cut to, there's also a fat guy there. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's, that's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And, and I didn't realize until, you know, you watch one of those YouTube videos that that was the same fat guy who's the FAA agent. I assume he was yeah. either spying on Donnie or he is just a weirdo. Mm-hmm. Again, maybe a little bit more of that, uh, Cunningham spice throughout the film. Yeah. I assume that there, it gives like a, a kind of, um, there's an air of like a, uh, an ill-defined, but quite nicely ill-defined, um, conspiracy around the whole thing. You know, like when the jet engine comes down and one of the few people who's in front of it is wearing like a full tinfoil suit and hosing it down with some sort of unknown mm-hmm. liquid. And then, you know, yeah, the FAA guys have all got sunglasses and there's the bit towards the end when they're having the party and he shines the, the torch right down the lens of the, of the camera. Uh, from across the street it's just yeah it's got that sort of like it's a paranoia uh a strange paranoia which uh pervades the whole thing and totally makes sense with with uh with donnie's character the biggest compliment i can give jenna malone in this film is that when you know having seen it multiple times now every single time she's she she gets killed i'm i'm cut up about it yeah and i think it's there's a little there's a little moment when they're in the cellar door um and she's just she's just playing with the piano and looking across and that does it for me she's just looking at him smiling he he smiles there's no dialogue she's just playing with the keys and then knowing what's coming next it just gets me every time so it's absolutely kudos to her because she's still very very young uh, i think gillen hall's a few years older than her in the film uh in the film and also um as an actor and uh, I've always I've always liked her, and I've always wondered why she isn't in more things. But she's she's a bit of an indie darling, mm-hmm. I believe, isn't she? She sort of one of the few to, things oh, I've Hunger seen Games. was um, Sucker Punch, which was not good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Outside of that, I don't know what what else. Uh, and, and the Hunger Games, which I guess puts it all in roughly genre type stuff. So I, I don't know what else she's really done outside of that. And actually, just before we go, move on to Beth Grant. This is a 90s, like for me, the movie canon stuff, like to see the actor who is Miguel in Independence Day, you know, when he's talking oh about God. his dad, it's like, um, Frank <laughs> is the name of my, my father. I was like, no, it isn't. It's Russ. It's right. It's, the, it's on the, the other side of town. <laughs> so he's one of the worst actors of his generation. And it was really, oh, it's James <laughs> annoying actually. Yeah. He's dreadful. I just want Adam Baldwin to just be like, your father did a, a brave thing there. I know. <laughs> he, he, he's, he's terrible in uh, Gone in 60 Seconds as well. Yeah, yeah. he is. Well, he was like, so, a, like a pound on Keanu Reeves, right? Like, yeah. Just a, yeah. He was a... Um, he was a Greg Araki uh, discovery yeah. in, was it the Doom Generation? Doom Generation, yeah. There's an extra on the DVD, though, where the the guy that's auditioning to be the number number one Donnie Darko fan um, meets up with him, and he's, he's a lovely guy in real life, so I shouldn't be slagging him off. But when, when, the, when the mask comes off and he's underneath, it actually works because of the, the eye wound and everything, and it's it, it doesn't really matter who the actor is at that point, I, I don't think. But, um, yeah, if, if, he, if he was doing more... Um, without the voice, without yeah. The well, voice the, 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 the distortion of the voice, the bunny outfit, yeah. the 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 tone and the mood that's set around the character elevates him as a as a, as a performer. But yeah, and then yeah, if you want to see him really strong, it's Independence Day, where it's like uh, like you said, <laughs> you need to barf, then just barf there. 
anyway. <laughs> now, Beth Grant, another 90s legend. You may remember her as the woman who does not stay on the bus. Why? Yeah. Oh, also, isn't she the the woman in uh, Fight Club who is dying of cancer and she, I have lubricants in my apartment and, you know. Ain't no nitrate. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's her, right? Yeah. Yeah, this way I can just travel and relax all the way to work. <laughs> no, she is she is absolutely fantastic in Speed, and she's great in Dolly Darko. I just every that you know that when we were talking about the opening sequence um, with the music, the faces she pulls when they run into Noah Wiley and Drew yeah. Barrymore, like she she the contempt she has, and then in the PTA <laughs> meeting. Just, oh, so funny. It's like, I am the only person yeah. who transcends the teacher-parent bridge. <laughs> it's the slow-mo stuff when she's celebrating sparkle motion, get to the next round. And then the, immediately the newspaper cuttings of Cunningham, and she's just like crestfallen. And that is my, fa- you know, we're going to move yeah. into favorite scenes. But when she's at the doorstep of Rose, <laughs> and she's like, I would never dare have asked you. You're the last person. Rose. I have to appear at his arraignment tomorrow morning. And as you know, the girls are scheduled to leave for Los Angeles in the morning. Now, as their coach, I was the obvious choice to chaperone them on their trip. But, but now you can't go. Yes. Hmm. Now, believe me, of all the other mothers, I would never dream of asking you, but none of the other mothers are available to go. I don't know, Kitty. It's a bad weekend. Eddie's in New York. Rose, I don't know if you realize what an opportunity this is for our daughters. This has been a dream of Samantha's and, and all of ours for a long time. I made her lead dancer. Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. The blackboard. And uh, placing the X between was actually yeah. from a real class that uh, Richard Kelly oh, wow. had in, in high school. Oh, wow. It's odd because there's actually a Bill a Bill Hicks routine, which is essentially the same thing. You know, oh, what's that? You know, the, the great firebrand thinker, Bill Hicks, you're like, yeah, tear shit down. There's a, there's an entire, the, I think it's the end of one of his last big recorded shows where he's like, we just have to make a simple choice between fear. Oh, between and fear love. and love. Yeah. Yeah. It's like ah. Sane Man, I think. Maybe it's Sane Man. I think so, I yeah. I think it's after he'd, I think it's after he'd quit smoking and he'd started, he'd started doing shrooms. So I think he was kind of, <laughs> yeah. uh, I think he was, he was, um, yeah. potentially kind of, uh, sensing the end was coming at that point. Ah, oh, well, well, there you go then. So, I mean, I mean, that's roughly, uh, there are, I mean, there's so many characters. Even, uh, we haven't even talked about, uh, the doctor. Um, you know, you may recognize the actress from The Graduate. Also, Sam Elliott's wife. So she's immediately my favorite person ever. I thought it was great. I could imagine she's their some... conversations yeah. at home. Like, I just, what yeah. an amazing... He answered the door apparently when they went to meet her to convince her to be in the movie. Wow. Uh, he just he just answers the door, and I'm like, whoa, it's him. And then uh, they thought they'd have to convince her, but she wanted to convince them. I would have sent Swayze and be like, we've got one more place we need to bounce. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought it was. Um, it's a great bit of uh, a great bit of stunt casting because she was the lead in uh, the stepford wives so i i always assumed that that's where they were getting it from so you know the, this kind of the cookie cutter suburban thing and the stepford wives being the uh the the kind of the urtext 
of uh, terrifying suburban anonymity. But she's she's strong as well because again, you 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 feel like she empathises with Donny. She doesn't really judge him, which I like. And then when she has the conversation with the parents, you can see that when she's trying to explain what she thinks is happening, she's trying to do it in the most delicate fashion because it's you know it's it's, it's writ large on their face. You know that when she says like it's a daylight uh, daytime uh, schizophrenia. It's like, ugh, no one wants to really hear that. Um, and, and how do you deal with it? And again, very topical of the time that we were still coming to grips with mental health and what that all means. And I definitely think, you know, we, we mentioned how Richard Kelly isn't an avatar or Donnie isn't an avatar for Richard Kelly, but there's definitely got to be something there that he's either experienced it um, secondhand or... And, w- and when she wakes up know. after the event as well, she has that moment of uh empathetic i don't know response to donny passing as well mm-hmm. yeah there's a there's an acknowledgement yeah. like again subconsciously she's mm. she seems to have realized what events may have transpired and there's a sadness as well i think she she liked her sessions with mm. donny i think she found him interesting yeah, and you yeah. get all of that through what is three scenes in a room with a couch mm. um and yeah it's really really again she's great it, and Stunt casting, but um listen, I'm I'm surprised they didn't manage to get Sam Elliott just to do like <laughs> one voiceover at the end. Like it would have been great. Just a couple of things just on the nature of the end of the film and maybe getting back into the philosophy a little bit. But another character, not so much you know, not big performance or anything, but is Grandma Death or, or R- Roberta um Sparrow. And I think I d I don't know, we haven't spoken about her. Yeah, and the importance of her and her place there. But I'm reading it that she's going for a letter that never arrives. But of course, that letter, if she's written the uh, uh, theory of time travel, that's the letter that Donnie writes her that she's looking for, right? She's been waiting her whole life for it to become full circle. And again, to have the journey that Donnie's on, it's important that he lived this time to understand and to fulfill something save her life in a way through Gretchen and it's a fascinating little bit there that this is something that's happened to someone else from a wormhole point of view and an educational point of view that Donnie could well have become Grandma Death as well but maybe understood his fate a bit sooner Um I also got something mm. just quickly on the, the, the Cinderella grandfather clock chiming midnight twice where for me that's where the magic ends and you have to face reality I think, I think that, like you say, we, you know, I'm not going to eat my summary. There are multiple readings and there's so many things that you can just latch onto and expand upon and look at it, whether it's a metaphor or whether it's a, it feeds into a greater law within the movie. Um, but one of the things that I find fascinating is this film is clearly kind of allows for great discussion and it was a, a bona fide cult classic in the, in the purest sense, you know, found an audience made no money on initial release through audience uh, kind of um, will and the, and people kind of latching onto it, then gets a number one UK Christmas hit on the back of it, then gets released in cinemas, then has a director's cut, all these kind of things. And it's all helmed by a really young, prestigious talent uh, in Richard Kelly. So I asked the question, why has he not had the career like Darren Aronofsky and 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 kind of because this is such a strong opener no matter what you mm. think of the film like you can't watch it and think well that guy's got no talent like there is clearly 
a talent behind it and, a, and an author that you think, well, you must have. Yeah, what he, else have you got? He didn't got? make the Boondock Saints, did he? He actually made something. No, this isn't. Yeah, this <laughs> yeah. isn't Duffy. Um, you know, God bless him. Um, so, yeah. so what is it? Because I, I re I Well, I, I, I avoided Southland Tales, which was his follow-up. Um, and avoided I avoided it. Why? I, it came with an absolutely toxic word of mouth. The, the exact opposite. Donnie Darko had an incredible word of mouth, which is people saw it and were evangelical about it. Southland Tales was dead on arrival. There's a um, there's an article I read in the Hollywood Reporter, which is called Anatomy of a Can Disaster which is pretty interesting. And it's basically the slow motion horror show car crash of what happens when you take a film to Cannes as a young up and coming director. Hot, you know, this is your sophomore feature. This is the one that he turned down a bunch of uh, director for hire work because he really, I think he's got a very strong idea of what it is that he wants to do. This is all come from, from a podcast that I listen to. And I don't, uh, I, I don't know how, I think he's kind of, hamstringing himself but also at least he's kind of following his own ethos here but um essentially south Tales went to Cannes as an unfinished cut and was uh roundly rejected brutally rejected by a a festival which has a tendency to tear films apart especially american films especially american films that they perceive as being pretentious it was you know it had a lot of um uh, pop culture icons in lieu of actors. He was probably the first person to give Justin Timberlake or one of the first people to give Justin Timberlake an acting break. The Rock, it was The Rock's maybe second role. Um, it was just, it was, uh, it was the perfect storm. And also he himself says he, he took on way too much with South wow. and Tales. Wow. It was, um, apparently it's cut into three chapters and the chapters are four, five, and six and that he had written one, two, and three and published them as a um a comic book and he kind of intimated that if you didn't read the comic books to parts one two and three that you would not have got the full effect of films four five and six now you can't expect as a sophomore director to have people do fucking homework before they go (laughs) see a film and apparently the comics the comics were only barely even published it was only because he was he had patronage in the form of kevin smith who had clout and a, a comics imprint he actually printed the comics for him and they barely got out into into the bookstores before the cinema uh it was uh, i think it was just it was a, a a tale of potentially hubris although the guy seems like a nice guy i just think that yeah he, he does he does i mean and that's the, that's the bit that kind of surprised me when i when i read when i've listened to him uh on a podcast and i, I watched a q a that he did for donnie darko and southland tales um in an la screening with with obviously sycophant fans but he was there just you know talking about it because he doesn't have the rights to donnie darko and the you know and and he's never made i don't think he's made a great deal of money from any of the films that he's made particularly i, I think um for donnie darko when he signed the contract in order for him to direct because he was so young he basically just had to take a fee which was pretty small and that was it he relinquished any kind of uh, intellectual rights to the property and and that's how you end up with S. Darko. Yes, yeah, the sequel mm. that we'll not talk about because I don't think it's even worthy. Of, he, he doesn't of, have of anything to do with it, though, does he? There was a weird uh, kind of career trajectory after. Like, I didn't really like Southland Tales. I, it's a film that kept me at arm's length. Like, I think I said that on one of the films we reviewed. It just felt that way. It didn't embrace me. It just kind mm. of mm. you just kind of observed it from afar. I and got then, an hour in, Matt. 
and I couldn't take anymore. Oh, yeah. Like, it was, well, it actually, I, it, was, it was actually hurting my head because I was just like, this is utter nonsense. Like, in terms of why he amazing. hasn't kind of gone on. Yeah, you're actually to be an kind of selling it to I, me. <laughs> <laughs> I think like, um, people get perhaps got sick of that high concept puzzling thing that also when the films don't make money. Um, so he hadn't directed a film in 12 years, I think. Uh, he focused on producing. He did, uh, the Bobcat Gold, Goldthwaite, uh, um, World's, World's Greatest, Greatest Dad, Dad starring fantastic. Robin Williams. Yeah. So he focused on other things and, uh, I think he's a really smart guy. It just didn't, Have you seen the didn't box? quite take off. I did. I went to an audience test screening of the box when it was, uh, when it was coming out weirdly. I, I had to fill out the audience card for it in Leicester Square and, uh, it is, Telling that the only thing I remember about it is the image of Frank Langella turning up at the door with the titular box. Outside of that, I could not tell you how they filled the rest of that running time because mm. I, it's unfortunate. I mean, it was a, an adaptation of a Richard Matheson short, which had already been adapted as a Twilight Zone episode. And the concept is so small. It's like you press a button, you get a million dollars, someone somewhere dies, you don't know who they are. And then, of course, the ironic twist at the end is that someone else has pressed the button. And the people who pressed the button last time are the ones that die. How you stretch that out to feature length and invest it with more than, than it has is, is a challenge. And I, I gen, like I said, I don't remember how they filled the time, but if it was that memorable, I, I would have. Well, if you need a guy to fill in, fill in running time with a load of bullshit, then Richard Kelly's your, uh, your man. It surprised me, Matt, when I was watching the Q and A's because he cut and the, uh, the last ones were filmed in like, 2017 so four years ago he cut quite a forlorn figure like i don't i don't know there's a part of me that thinks like why haven't you done a vicenzo natale or an aronofsky you know go and do some television get get your reclaim a little bit of kudos and credibility again and then you know you'll get a sh- you know a small amount of money do it m night shaman's got another film out right now like that guy just yeah. keeps coming back so i don't <laughs> i don't know you know i don't know why he, he whether he's just grasping onto his ideals so strongly that he refuses to to sort of take on someone else's vision and make it mm-hmm. his own but that that to me just feels like um you know it's a loser's game really because you know, but to me, like um, me and Devon were talking about this offline. For me, in a, in a world now where content is just accessible constantly, you know, the stream of consciousness on Netflix and Amazon means that I miss most things because there's just too much. But if I if I saw something that said from the from the maker of Donnie Darko, I would probably check it out. Even after I've been burnt by Southland Tales, I'd still check it out. That's going to cut through the noise. It's yeah. absolutely. So why on earth has he not managed to pick something up? Yeah. And I don't think it's because he doesn't want to. Um, and I don't think it's because he's, he's like a dickhead diva either. It's just maybe he's just so belligerent about his vision that they're just like, well, sorry, Rich. Um, you made Southland Tales. You're going to have to concede a bit of ground, bud. Well, I, I do have a, uh, yesterday I picked up a, at least an aspect of an answer to that. Apparently he's had productions that have been on the way towards a go. And it's quite sad because whenever you read an interview, it's always like, we could be in production as early as next year. And it's like date stamp 2014. It's like, ah, oh, fuck's sake, poor guy. But, um, I listened to him on a, on a podcast. Um, and, uh, towards the end of his time on the podcast, it kind of, it, it went down a, a pretty 
on-brand rabbit hole, which is that he just started talking about how he has this grand vision to put the first three chapters back into Southland Tales and to create two three-hour-long films using the footage that he's already shot in 2005 and 2006 for Southland Tales, and that be four, five, and six, and then to shoot a new film, one, two, and three, and then shoot additional material to bridge the two and to release them as a as a bipartite six hour long fucking hell for a thing which is not good in the first place if if it's a hit if it's star wars and george lucas wants to do that then fine but if it's not a hit then you gotta let it go haven't you it's about to say matt we need to start the george lucas needs to have a chat with richard kelly go from the page because if he just has a word and says listen (laughs) let the fans let the fans make the law you just come up with with yep. the seed that's but it I, like yeah. they have to I, want the seed <laughs> i think he just because <laughs> I, I i thought the same as you which is like why not just do a blumhouse movie jason blum has mm. got all the money in the world and is quite happy to give a million two three million to a filmmaker especially one who's at least look, once look what he can do yeah. yeah um but uh he's again he said on the same podcast like, it's not the ideas that i have the ideas i have are essentially he's he's his brain is painting only on like 10, 15, 20 million dollar budgets. And it's like, you don't have it. So yeah. I kind of respect it in a way that he's like, if I can't make what I want to make, then I'm not just going to sit here and churn something out for the sake of churning mm-hmm. something out. But on the other mm-hmm. hand, I just, I do think that's a shame, really. Shall we have a McMuffin in uh, Critics Corner? Yes, please, yes, Matt. Please. Let's go to Critics Corner. Mm-hmm. I'm hungry. Um, nom, 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 nom. I'll start with, uh, I'll start with Looper. Uh, like a fine wine, it's sickly sci-fi aftertaste takes time to mature a little research and extracurricular knowledge is required to piece everything together which was yeah i don't like to i don't like to do homework after a film thank you right that's in my sandwich box later the homework aspect uh in 2001 uh the late great maybe roger ebert compared the approach to that of mulholland drive uh which he said was another beautiful yet confusing puzzle to be solved. Uh, I quite like Roger's take uh, this week. Uh, the setup and development <laughs> is week. fascinating. Uh, the payoff less so, and uh, a feeling of closure is lacking. And that's an important point that that I agree with. He said that Donnie Darko was like the one that got away, it, but it was really fun trying to land it. Um, and that taps into some of my thoughts on it. It depends if you're a puzzle person or whether you like films that reveal everything about themselves and not make you work at all so yeah without going into conclusions that's uh I, i'm kind of half on on roger's side this week matt final thoughts on donnie darko and would you recommend the film to our listeners uh, as kevin smith says on the quite challenging and acerbic and entertaining director's cut commentary alongside kelly it's an auspicious beginning that captured a lot of people's imaginations um, I, I take issue with films that don't have maximum impact on first viewing. Inception was a similar one for me. Uh, but I found Donnie Darko more enjoyable and abstract in a more palatable way. Um, and I actually think it is more impactful on first viewing. It doesn't fully reveal itself, but I still probably enjoyed it the most the first time around. Um, can you really enjoy a movie that you don't understand? That was a bit of a 
predicament for me. Um, and I think some people are just puzzle people. When someone says, do you want to do this big jigsaw? I'm like, no, I, I don't want to do the big jigsaw. Um, take that Sudoku away. Or what, I, I don't know. I, I'm not really into that. I'm just not really inclined um, to do that. But um, I think dedicating two hours to someone's movie is a sacred thing. And it, it really is now where people are just sc- doing nothing, scrolling through their Instagram and Twitter and things like that. If you're going to dedicate two hours to something, you really want to come away with some kind of finality. Uh, when I rewatch things, it's to chase the dragon and I'll watch Raiders of the Lost Ark 50 times, but um, not to find out what it was about, just to relive what I loved about it. Um, I don't think I should have to read an essay or a book to understand a film. Um, it's it, This one is challenging, but at the same time it cheats because you need to know information that isn't in the film in order to understand it comprehensively and ultimately appreciate the intelligence. So I would mark it down for that. Um, but there's a demand for these films. Some people really like them. So as far as I recommend, it depends on the personality type of the, of the viewer. Um, but puzzlingly, I still like the film. I think it's the quality of the visuals, the soundtrack, the absurdity and the humor make it a really pleasurable watch. And I like the the vibe of it. I like spending time in the company of, of the film. Um, so, yeah, I kind of fell in between two stools, really. Um, if you're in the mood for a mystery, absolutely. Um, if you're in the mood to be toyed with by a film, I'd recommend it. I mean, I was sucked in completely, like the horse sounds and like trying to absorb every frame and looking at numbers and colors and trying to figure out what means what I was totally sucked in. So it got the brain box ticking, but I had to put a lot of investment into it. And I think I'm a bit too lazy to do the homework as, as Gally said. Um, so a story that re- when all is said and done, I want to be told a story, a story that resolves in a manner I can relate to or be moved by and understand if possible. And Donnie Darko denied me that a little bit. Um, so in spite of the soundtrack and all, all the positives, it wasn't quite my cup of tea, but I can see how a lot of listeners would be, would be into it. So a bit divided there. I think Dev looks ready next. I'll go over to Devlin. Um, well, I, I, I was, uh, I was really interested in, in your take on it. Really, really interested. Um, because I also am not a puzzle person. Uh, I always find it a bit annoying when somebody tells me as well that I have to pay attention and put this film together. And uh, it was a th- it was a stumbling block for me for a long time on on getting into David Lynch because this was how it was described to me. People would try and tell me that like, no, you have to watch this film like this, and you have to and the, and with it. And usually when when there's an answer, the answer is stupid because if there's an answer to a film, then it is stupid because there's the answers are to questions. And I feel like if you can sum it up, if you can tell me what this is in a paragraph, then why am I sitting for two hours through something? There has to be something more to it. But oddly, I don't see this film as a puzzle, even though it would appear that from the ancillary material and especially the extended version that Richard Kelly perhaps does, or at least part of him does. Um, I'm 
this was the first time I'd seen it for in, a, in a while. And certainly that I, what I did was I watched some of the same YouTube explainer videos that you guys did as well. And that was the first time I'd ever watched those. And there was, you know, so, so there's this guy and they've gone through it and they've researched it. And I'm sure it all holds, holds water. And it's so yeah, the, the, the jet goes through the thing and it's a tangent universe and this, this, and this is that. And then it becomes this. And then they of course say, but we don't know why any of this is happening. And so it's like, well, you've just, you've, you've constructed a, a little puzzle there by putting all the straws together, but it doesn't mean anything. You've just created a puzzle. And I've never found that interesting. And what was cool was that when I went back and watched the film, literally all of that fell away. And I went back into how I used to watch the film to start with, because, um, I actually love being confused by films. I love being confounded by them. And I love the idea that I don't get to put it together because it's not for me to put it together. It's for me to, just sit with the uncertainty and that I've, I found that the theatrical version of the film really slippery with a conf- that confidence that we talked about in the way that he puts his film together and the, the coherence of the performances and the coherence of the world building allows me to believe that there's something else there. But what I love is the ineffability of it. The idea of like, um, is is it just that uh is it just visions that donnie is having is he able to see things that are coming uh but that um he's finding a way to construct um to construct a framework in his head that makes this make sense for him he's an unreliable narrator and we are in his film uh, which kind of makes sense when you see the way he's presented. He's heroically presented with these, you know, every time he's introduced, he gets, uh, he gets two, like we said, two amazing musical montage intros. Um, and, you know, and, and so I guess that's, that's what I love about it is that it's, it's got genuine emotional impact and this kind of slippery mystery air around it. Like we said, like this Lovecraft thing of like, you talk about the impact of what's happening. If you talk about what's happening, you rob it of its mystery and its power. So I, I guess that's why I loved about it. I really did and, and enjoy the, the rewatch of it this time around. I, I thought it was great. Um, what stood out as well was, um, how ahead of its time the, the score was. Um, Michael, is it Michael Chapman? Is that his name? Michael Andrews. Sorry. Uh, Michael Andrews score is doing stuff with like this kind of minimalist classical, piano pieces married with a kind of pure ambient stuff it's you know the bands like stars of the lid and la bradford were only just starting to do stuff like this in the early 2000s and if you think you know um then after that like niels Fram and oliver arnold's and uh uh johan johansson these are guys who who went on to do really great work in in music but also oliver arnold scored Broadchurch, and johan johansson did several scores and there's i think the dna of this was really rippled out um uh so that that really struck me like there's the the moments of the uh these kind of great scoring the soaring score moments everything from the evil dead sequence onwards is really pretty um so yeah i i guess um I'm okay with the idea that it's faux profundity because I guess if you can ignore the science fiction trappings, if you want, or if you can indulge them as far as you personally want to, um, what's left is, is clearly a film of great intent and great emotional heft that clearly resonated with a lot of people. And for me, at least it's, it's still there. 
Like, uh, you know, I, I've seen retrospective articles say that it's everyone's first profound thought <laughs> or like, you know, that it's like a, a lot of people who would have seen it 14, 15, 16, 17, that it's like, oh man, it blown, it's blown my mind wide open. And then they say that it just gets dumber as you get older. <laughs> and I, just, I, I don't know. I, I feel like it's kind of cast in amber for me that I can go back there with this film. Did so, you ever hear that um, Paul McCartney thing where he said um, that they were smoking marijuana for the first time? I think Bob Dylan had given it to them. And Paul thought Bob. he got the meaning of life that night um, and he wrote something down on a piece of paper and gave it to Mal <laughs> Evans, one of the Beatles um, uh, roadies, I think. Yeah. And uh, the, the next day, like Mal said to Paul, he said, oh, do you want to see what you wrote on that piece of paper? Like, <laughs> your, your meaning of life. And it just uh, said, there are seven levels on this piece of paper. And that, and that's it. So it's like he had this moment where he thought he discovered the meaning of everything and it turned out to be just nothing. But that feeling mm. is Donnie Darko, isn't it? It's like that, yeah. like you said, the first profound thought we have. So it, it feels like that and revisiting it is really quite pleasant. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I did great rewatch and, and very happy to, to come back to it. Um, who wants to go next? I don't know. Uh, Gally, it was your pick. I don't know whether you, often we leave you for last and you end up just having to agree. Uh, no, I, I actually, I do agree with pretty much everything that uh, yourself and Matt have said, but I, I'm going to take a slightly different slant at it, which is that, um, you know, like you say, all that kind of the meaning of life stuff. I, I, not that I dismiss the, the, the science fiction elements and the things that Kelly, you know, in order to sort of justify the means goes through. Um, I, I did get, I do get emotionally involved and I just love being a part of this world and the characters. And I just think it absolutely nails how it feels to be of that age. And you, you are thinking that you are the center of the universe and you do think that you've kind of got everything figured out because all these other, these norms, they're just, you know, they're machines, man. They're just, they're, they're, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of the matrix going on where you, you feel like, you know, I've, I've jacked out and uh, I can see the world now clearly. And, and that kind of whole anti-establishment stuff, which, you know, I am now part of the establishment. We all are. We're all a bit older and you realize that you need to get a job. Otherwise you'll be a bum. Um, so you have to kind of, you know, you have to go and accept it, but there's a time period when you are catered for by your parents and you can afford to be kind of reckless in your thinking. Some people carry that on and they get a cause that they want to then fight. I know I'm slightly, uh, making Donnie Darko sound like the, the, the intersection point between choosing life, which is another film, and then moving on into somewhere else, but or becoming part of the establishment. But that's to me, that's the feeling that I get, and it's the takeaway that I get when I watch Donnie Darko. And I hadn't seen it since university, and I'm kind of glad that I've left that much time. And maybe I'll leave another 20 years, uh, or not 20 years, Christ, I'm not that old. Maybe I'll leave it another 10 years before I watch it again. But when I do, I think I'll go back to that same kind of happy place. Like you say, it's cast in amber for me. Um, and I, yeah, if people want to try and work it all out, then by all means, they've got more time than I. And, uh, and I totally agree, Matt, you know, 
the the reason why Star Wars has kind of slipped away from me is because I can't be bothered with all of the lore, all the characters, all of the, well, if you'd read this, then you would have known that the motive, uh, no, no, no. Like, I'll just stick with the films, and if I can get it, great. And unfortunately, as they've been getting made, I they've lost me, and I'll just stick to the original three, which kept it nice and simples, because I'm simples. Um, and, you know, if people want to write fan fiction, all power to you, but... um I'm not one for, for going out of the, the realms of the running time to, to try and decipher these things. So yeah, it's a recommend for me, theatrical. It's a not recommend for the directors. Patrick, what do you think? First and foremost, I like this film very much. Um, I will recommend it. I've not seen the director's cut, so whatever. Um, from a favorite scenes point of view, I like everything with Donnie and Gretchen. There's some really confident filmmaking wise. We spoke about Kelly being 24, but to, when a director intercuts scenes, certain things, I sometimes get very, I find it's an impressive art, um, editing and directing there. So when he's burning down Cunningham's house and we've got the, the, um, the intercutting of what Cunningham's doing at the same time, or that there's, a, there's another example. I think all oh, that's great. And the cinema scene, I think is particularly strong and otherworldly and really interesting. Um, from a puzzle side of things, it, it's funny. When I first saw it, and my memories of this, I never thought of it as a puzzle. I think I just went along with the ride and enjoyed the drama and the characters and the relationship more. And that's what I really latched on to when I wanted to watch it at uni and, and to feel something. So I find it quite a sad film. And I thought that sadness came from understanding that someone was going to die and this is going to fail. And I... Watched it on Wednesday, ready for this, and I think I got too much into the timey-wimey uh, uh, stuff because I thought we were going to have a big conversation. I really wanted to bring my game today to speak to you all um, about it. And when we did talk about that at the beginning of the podcast, I felt like this is the stuff I don't enjoy about the film, and it, it doesn't. It's not that important to me. What's important is the a coming of age story of a troubled teen and someone finding their way in the world and understanding who they are and growing up and with the, with a soundtrack that reflects the time and place and the, the bullying and who they are and their influence around them and becoming a man and understanding who you're supposed to becoming a grown up, excuse me, like Gretchen's becoming a grown up as well and, and, and understanding all of that. And I really latch onto it, especially emotionally, Matt. I, I know you may have been a little bit removed from that, but for me, I, I do sit there at the end a little shell-shocked because I find it quite sad. And the sadness that I knew was coming and felt like I knew was coming, but did anyway, and I still feel it's kind of a hit. And that, for me, is a mark of a film that's taken me on a journey from the beginning, middle, and end, and, and done it really well, and told the story really well. And whether or not I want to understand things that other people say, oh, you don't understand this from a, the, the wormhole and time travel things... I think, I, for me, I feel like I've stripped it to a basic form that there's an inevitability in a wormhole and there is the science fi- sci-fi stuff there, but it's just to take the character from one side to the other to influence, it's, it's um, uh, destiny, fate. And I, I like ambiguity. I like Devlin. I, I like being confused and not having a full ending, uh, um, and things being handed to me on a plate because to leave me in that quiet when the credit rolls and that music and to my own thoughts, 
it's done a, this film's done a wonder on me, really. Like, uh, I remember how I felt when I first saw it and thought I was a cool, young, energetic <laughs> film student who wanted to understand a film at the time. But it's never, this film's never really thrown me so much that I felt so lost. And I think that's because of its heart. It's a coming of age drama. And everything else is incidental. You know, like a few years later, you got like butterfly effect, which I thought was dog shit. And I think that is an example of taking something like this uh, and trying too much with it and trying to be too smart and too like fucking into the science. It didn't work. Relationship didn't work. I didn't care anything. Donnie Darko is an example where it did work completely and purely. And whether like 35 now, when I watched it when I was 16, it's, I actually feel like it's had the same effect for me, which has been great. Devlin mentioned like interstellar and all the science in there. And I feel like it's a little more intricate in that film, but again, the emotional cause of its heart, but this theatrical cut, knowing what I know about the director's cut, I, I, I love this theatrical cut for, for what it is really. If I feel like they found the film in that cut and, and not complicated it too much. Where can our listeners team, yeah. Fine. Can, can we stream it on M- Ubo and Numpom? <laughs> is it currently playing on Calypso? <laughs> Pluto <laughs> TV, Roku, Tubi, Canopy. It's not on in the UK. Get out of town! There's one called Canopy. Canopy and Film Rise. That's for our American well, friends. And this, is, this list is growing UK. every week. This is ridiculous. I know it's daft, isn't it? In in England. Get some sense. Uh, it's on Arrow <laughs> uh, and Shudder, and I know Shudder. Something that looks like it's got something to do with Richard Branson, but I think it's a Virgin <laughs> Media thing. But it, it's on there. Did he watch it in there. space? Did he? And <laughs> wouldn't have time. He's only up there for thirty-six seconds. Fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah. So one of them. It's streaming on all of them. Okay, fantastic. Um, I think for for those people that are diehard fans, they probably already will own it. But there are the, Arrow released a a Blu-ray with commentaries and behind the scenes and lots of lots of extra content, including the many iterations of the bunny rabbit, which we've actually managed to avoid talking about, which is kind of impressive. And we won't talk about it now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Even though he said he had never seen the film Harvey, which I find interesting. This one's easy to easy to get on uh, on Blu-ray and DVD. I I I used to have the VHS, but I no longer have that. Um, so I just, I bought it off Amazon. Um, just another extra couple of quid there for Jeff and his team. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's easily, easily available. We now though, we now move on to a very scary section. So Devlin, it is your choice of a throwback. Whoa. Please enlighten us. And if we can, cause my brain mm. is like ready to just like spill out onto the floor. Uh, Can we keep it, keep it like low? Keep it. It's been a while, hasn't it? It's been a while since I've done this to you. <laughs> it's been like eight months. Bloody <laughs> hell. Um, well, we are, uh, uh, apparently since, since the dawn of 2021, we've been having aspirations, delusions of grandeur that we're some sort of grown-ups that we can sit here and talk about time travel and philosophy and war films and all serious stuff and that. So, so strap in, motherfuckers, because uh, for the next episode, or the next throwback at least, it's Rex Manning Day. That's right. We're watching Empire Records. I look forward to that, dude. And you know what? We're, we basically... 
we're going through a bit of a midlife crisis here, aren't we? We're just trying to watch all the films that make us feel like we're not dying. Um, so it's fine. <laughs> Happy with that. <laughs> okay. Well, that'll be our next throwback. So cheers. Cheers, Devlin. When that will be? Well, we have many, many things coming up, listeners. We've got the slimy version of Alien, Alien Resurrection coming up. Uh, we've also got Lev has chosen Commando. So, you know, get your Valverde passports ready and all that. Um, and then we have many other things down the pipeline. We're also probably going to take what, uh, Matt, you're going to take a little summer vacation. A little holiday, yeah, so I'll, I'll see you all in a little while. I've got six weeks of night shoots coming yeah. up as well, so I'm going to struggle. Maybe we'll get Tom Hardy. I know uh, that's who you're working <laughs> with. See, if he's not shooting with you, then he should be recording with us. Um, <laughs> so we'll see if we can get him on. Although he doesn't get to do the Jack and Ori, you still do the Jack no, and Ori. No. You still do that. <laughs> He'll just uh, sit there and stare at you. <laughs> <laughs> if you're new to the show and you enjoy what we do, please like, share, subscribe. Um, give us a, a little review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Um, you know, helps people come to the show uh, and, and build, build our little community of rewinders of which there are many um so yeah that'll be fantastic we really do appreciate we appreciate all your support so team we will say our goodbyes then shall we geez someone ought to write that bitch it's galley in glasgow signing out you mean soap it's devlin in london because all the other smurfs were getting horny it's patrick in london oh no dice grandma it's matt in south korea thank you very much for listening everyone and we'll catch you next time on the rewind movie podcast